well, I think it was last week. I was actually out of the country, so I'm not 100% sure. But it seems I read a headline somewhere that uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. lost the race in the final moments because he ran out of gas. Is that correct? That happened last week? Okay, I did catch it correctly. And it just struck me that in that final lap, in the final quarter of a lap, his car sputtered. He was still able to claim second place because he came across the finish line, but not before the other gentleman, I forget his name, but before he passed and went by him. It was interesting to hear them talk about the strategies, and uh, I suppose looking on the good side of things, one of uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s, uh, one of his uh, crewmen said, well, I guess it shows that we have pretty good math because they had calculated the amount of gas, and they had timed it, and they knew they were taking a bit of a risk, but at the end of the day, it wasn't much risk. They knew they were either going to fall just a bit short or they were going to make it across. But there are often times in our lives where we feel like we're just not going to make it. There are often times in life where there are things that deteriorate our faith, that sap our energy, and cause us to doubt whether we can go on any further. And uh, just to be sure I finish my sermon, I want to give it to you in just a, a little headline here, okay? The headline is this, that we all face a struggle. It's a very deep struggle. It's a serious struggle. Uh, we're attempting to live for God in a fallen world. It's not easy. You face that struggle, I face that struggle. But I also want you to know from this passage that we have a Savior King who is more than enough to strengthen us to get across the finish line. And that's what Revelation chapter 1 is all about. So you can either tune me out now or you can be enticed to listen in. But I want to talk about the struggle that we face. We face this struggle. We see it beginning in verse 9. And I want to focus on verse 9 to 20, uh, but felt it was good to read the whole. But in verse 9, we see John describing his struggle. He begins this way, I, John... Then in the second half of the verse says, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos was a small island off the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, this island was really a holding tank for political prisoners. There's some debate whether John had freedom to move around on the island or whether he was actually in a physical prison on that island. But we know this, he couldn't leave the island. He was there as a prisoner of the state. And while we don't know all of the specifics about the detail of his coming to that place, we do know this. He was on the island of Patmos for his convictions. He was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. This was the authority upon which he based his life. He was on the island of Patmos on account of the testimony of Jesus. This is how he understood the word of the Lord, to be speaking of one Savior, to be speaking of one King who was Lord of all, who had rescued him, set him free, and to whom now he owed his entire allegiance. This is why John was on the island of Patmos. We see it earlier in chapter 1, uh, verse 2. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, 
even to all that he saw. And then again now in verse 9, he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, you said we face a struggle. I did. Because you see, John's struggle is our struggle. Notice the way that he puts it. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is the way he describes himself. Your brother, your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John reaches out to his original readers to say, I am your brother and partner. It indicates a shared identity, a shared intimacy of experience. They are one together in the word of God, in the testimony of Jesus. He describes this identity and intimacy as in the tribulation and the kingdom and the impatient endurance that are in Jesus. The first bit is that we should notice is this, in Jesus. You know, Paul, he, he's very fond of the phrase, in Christ. Steve quoted uh, Ephesians 2.10, and we know the way that begins, uh, that we are a blessed people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So it is in Christ. That is the experience John is describing here, that this is the experience we have because of our identity and intimacy in Jesus, in the fellowship that we share in him. Now, he uses these three phrases then to capture this shared identity and intimacy of the experience that is in Jesus. He speaks of the tribulation. He speaks of the kingdom. And then he says the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Each one of these is very important. The first two, the tribulation and the kingdom, these are the poles, aren't they? They're the poles of our experience, the, the tribulation, the distress that we have as we seek to live out our lives as Christians in a fallen world. We have to deal with the world, the flesh, the devil, and yet our heart is yearning for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is inevitably bound to cause distress in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have peace. <laughs> we have a peace that passes understanding, but this distress is very Real. In fact, this is what has put Paul, uh, John on the island of Patmos. The kingdom, this is that sense of what we have already read about this Savior King in verse 5, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He exercises dominion over everything. And so we live in the light of that reality also. Strange position to be in, isn't it? But as Christians, we experience both the hostilities of a fallen world and the security and the final conviction of a victorious king. This is where we live until the Lord returns. And so he brings in this last quality of patient endurance, describing the perseverance that is needed and which Jesus gives us as we press toward the consummation of the kingdom. But mind you, it is an endurance we must face. All this is to say that John's struggle is our struggle. Our struggle is John's struggle. He may be facing it in a slightly different way than you and I have experienced it to this point. 
but it is a shared struggle because of this in Jesus experience. The struggle may come in a variety of ways. Uh, there's a fellow I know, a good friend in Indonesia, and from his part of the world, it's heavily Muslim dominated. And so there are great tensions between that faith and the Christians that are in that region. They're relatively small. This friend went out to uh, be a church planter while he was in Bible college. He was placed, actually, with an experienced church planter. And he worked with him over a couple of years. And this man went out and he uh, sought to uh, plant churches, to evangelize with the gospel. And it just didn't happen. Year after year after year, he found himself facing struggle after struggle. The discouragement sent in. Eventually, this fellow left the region. My friend, upon graduating from Bible college, took up the mantle in his own region and began to plant churches, but there was no fruit. Year after year passed, nothing happened. Then guess what? The tsunami hit in January or December 26th, what was it, 2004. The tsunami came crashing in. In fact, many had encouraged him to leave. He already had a post in a largely Christian area, many churches there. There would have been the comfort, the safety, the security of all that, but he stayed where he was. Then people came to him again once the tsunami hit. They said, you need to leave. His son's legs had been uh, broken. He needed medical help, but he stayed. The relief workers came. And guess what? God began to turn the tide. But all those years, the patient endurance, experiencing the side of the tribulation, but guess what? The victory was also there because through him, God has planted 17 churches in this region to date. The gospel is triumphant. But it calls upon us for many years to patiently endure This is the quality we need, and it's the quality Jesus will give us. It's the quality that is going to come to us as we read the words that follow. John's struggle is our struggle. We share together in this Jesus experience. There's no escaping it, nor would we want to. Would we? (laughs) Would we want to escape this? Not really. And if you're tempted to think so, listen to what comes For what John sees next should convince us and give us courage for our lives and our mission, whether that mission is in India or whether it's in Canada or whether it's right here in DeKalb. Here it is. Because here is the Savior King that's more than enough. Now, the structure of this is pretty easy to see. John's John's vision begins with a voice verses 10 and 11. Then that voice is interrupted by what he sees in verse 12 down to the first part of verse 17. And then the voice comes back again and reassures John about what he has just seen and why what he has seen is more than enough to give him the confidence to move forward in life and in mission. So let's look at this voice. John describes himself as being in the Spirit He is overwhelmed with a sense of God's presence. He has no doubt that what follows then is from the Lord. This is often a phrase, being in the Spirit, that's used throughout the book of Revelation, and it precedes a new vision that John receives. And so what follows is clearly from the Lord. 
Uh, it, it's somewhat similar, analogous to when Peter says uh, n- that no man spoke on his own accord, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here is John. He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this is likely language that's drawn from uh, Caesar's court. Uh, There are phrases that were used, the Lord's treasury, like Caesar's treasury, or uh, the Lord's service, or the Lord's finances, right? Uh, There was even considered the Lord's day in ancient Rome. Uh, Caesar Augustus had his day, a day that was celebrated from when he ascended to the throne. And so it was quite natural, really, for Christians to take on this language to speak of the one true king, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The Lord's Day, Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father to be seated on his throne. It was natural for Christians to do this, to celebrate the one true king who triumphed over death, ascended to the throne, and took up the scepter, his scepter, to reign. Now, if you can imagine this for a moment, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, this this kind of ecstasy that John has experienced, and all of a sudden, somewhere from behind him, he's awakened by a voice. And it's not an ordinary voice. It's a loud voice, a really, really loud voice, like the blast of a trumpet. I don't know if you've ever been sitting between two people where one person has a really loud voice, and they're trying to speak to the other person who happens to be right through your ear on the other side of you, and the way that just goes through you. But John is awakened from this ecstasy uh, by this blast of a trumpet voice. And the voice simply says this in verse 11, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now that order, it follows the natural order a carrier would have taken from Patmos to deliver a letter in Asia Minor. If he left Patmos where John was, he would go in this direction to deliver this letter. The number seven as is often the case in the book of Revelation, includes, but it points to, something beyond the individual parts. So this letter was not only meant for these individual churches, the number itself suggests it was meant for the church of Christ at large. And with supernatural authority, this voice speaks a message to the church of all time as he says to John, record this, write it down. So I take it, this is a message for those individual churches. It is a message for the church of the first century. It is a message for you and I today as we read aloud these words, as we hear them, as we seek to follow them. Now this is what John begins to hear, but then all of a sudden, breaking into this, it's interrupted by what he sees. Verses 12 to 17. What John heard is interrupted by what he sees. Upon hearing this loud trumpet voice, he turns around to have a look. (laughs) I was just thinking, well, who wouldn't, you know? (laughs) It's so shocking coming over your left or right shoulder, perhaps. You're going to turn around to see what in the world. And as he turns his 
as he turns around, his eyes are drawn to something that is really bizarre, really curious. He sees seven golden lampstands. But then almost as if the writer wants to push past this, he looks a bit further. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like a son of man in verse 12. Now, for the reader of the Bible, that phrase, the Son of Man, just jumps out at you. You can probably remember in the Gospels uh, many occasions on which this phrase is used. In one of those occasions, uh, there's a paralytic that's lowered through the roof, and uh, as he's dropped down and Jesus sees him, and uh, he just looks at the man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? The Pharisees throw their heads back and they're thinking to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is blasphemy. And Jesus says, which is easier to say? Get up and walk or son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, to them, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that. But to say, rise up and walk, that's a pretty difficult thing because he actually has to do it right there in front of everybody. So Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth. So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says, I tell you, rise up and walk. And so the man rose up and walked. The great thing there isn't that the man rose up and walked. The great thing is that it proved that Jesus is the Son of Man. That Jesus does have the power to forgive sins. Now let let your mind just sort of take hold of that. But all of that goes back further into the pages of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, where you have these, uh, these heinous kings and kingdoms rising up out of the sea. In the Old Testament, the sea is always a bad thing. And so these evil kings are rising up out of the sea, one after the other, the one following, conquering the one that came before and becoming a worse expression of evil and power that's out of control than the one previous, until finally... You go to heaven, you're transported there, and there is one who enters the throne room of the Ancient of Days. He's one like a son of man. It's the same exact language picked up here. Like a son of man. And that one is given dominion over all the other kingdoms. And his kingdom is a good kingdom. His kingdom is an all-powerful kingdom. His kingdom is a forever kingdom. A kingdom without end. This is the great hope of all time, that this king would arrive on the scene and this king would bring his kingdom in to our world so that his reign and rule would last forever. Well, there's so much here that we could consider, but what to note is that the phrases that come next are the phrases that that come right out of that throne room and other scenes in the book of Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel. Here's what John sees. He sees the Son of Man. Look at the way he's dressed. Verse 13, he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Speaks of his royalty. He considers his head in verse 14, first part. The hairs of his head were white, just in case we missed it. Like white wool, in case we missed that. Like snow. (laughs) Those words are originally used of the Ancient of Days in chapter 7. So it's suggesting to us the Son of Man is one with him, sharing an infinite measure of his purity, his wisdom, his holiness. Then there are the eyes, in verse 14, eyes like a flame of fire. 
Nothing is hidden from his gaze. He peers straight into the heart to see and judge the thoughts and intentions of man. His feet, in verse 15, they were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. They're blinding in appearance, and they're able to crush any who oppose him. There's this voice, one compared to a loud trumpet before, is now like the awe-inspiring roar of many waters. Then as if in a crescendo reaching a climax, verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His people are protected by the strength of his hand. His enemies are cut down by the power of his word, and no one, no one will be able to stop him, for one look upon his face will blind as sure as staring into the sun on a brilliantly lit day. Is it any wonder then at what follows? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the natural reaction when we come face to face with this Savior King. We are overwhelmed. We are smitten by his presence. But this vision is not meant to overwhelm us, at least not for the reason we think. And here's where we come back to the voice again. And this is critical. This voice returns to assure John that what he heard and saw was not intended to kill him. No, it was intended to empower him, to strengthen him and the church for the days that lie ahead. And this is what we need so desperately. This Savior King is for us, not against us, he lays his right hand on John saying, fear not. Isn't this a terrific word to hear? Ever since the earliest days of creation, man has been living in fear. Fundamentally, that fear is because he knows he is not righteous. He knows he does not deserve to live before the righteous king. Adam went running. And uh, the Lord said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I was afraid. So I hid from you. Isn't it amazing the way the gospel comes to us? Some of the earliest words in the gospel narratives are, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Fear not. <laughs> if we are not to be afraid, then we must find someone without limitations, Right? Someone who, who is like this Savior King when he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. No limitations. In other words, I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm everything in between. I am life itself. If our fear is going to be removed, we must find someone who's completely victorious. Someone who's conquered the worst of our enemies. This Savior King says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I died like the rest of the mankind, but unlike the rest of mankind, I overcame it once for all. Anyone else done that? Alive forevermore. Your worst enemy has no hold on me. 
If the fear is going to be removed, we must find someone who has all authority in his hands. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Something I learned very quickly is the janitor is really the one who's in control. Why? He has all the keys. Nobody else can get into those rooms. He can get into those rooms. He has the power over those rooms. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. This is the greatest word of comfort that you or I can cling to in life, in mission, and on our deathbeds. The Lord Jesus, the Savior King, is greater than death itself. He has authority over it. The Savior King is not against us. He is for us. And so the passage is rounded out with these two thoughts, that he comes to, to inform us and to guide us, to make us known. It says down in verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Isn't that beautiful? Just that expression, write, therefore. God wants us to know. <laughs> he wants us to know this vision. He wants us to feel the impact of having this Savior King as our Savior King. That he is there for us in life and mission. And so he says, write down. If it hadn't been written down, you and I wouldn't know it. What a beautiful expression. He comes to inform us. He comes not only to inform us, but to guide us here. Write there for the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, giving us the outline of this book of Revelation. Things you've seen, this vision, the things that are, what he's going to speak to the churches, the things that are to come, still yet future to that moment in time. And so he's going to inform, but he's also going to guide us through human history. And then the second thing is this Savior King comes to care for and to protect us. Now, we might have missed it before. The clues were already there. But it's going to come out now as he explains, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, remember he was in the midst of them earlier? Ooh, what does that show us? It shows us that Jesus is with his people He's in the middle of them, and he is protecting them as he holds them in his right hand. And so he's a Savior King that not only comes to inform and guide us, but one that comes to care for and protect us along the way. Now, all of these, uh, these descriptions are going to come out in the letters to the churches, you can look down at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so we know that he's deliberately drawing from these images to strengthen and to give courage and to reassure the churches of his power and presence, that he is there with them. And so that's why I say we are in the midst of a struggle. But in this struggle, we have God's presence. We have a Savior King who is more than enough to help us face this struggle. Very quickly, then, let me conclude. Let me just say, if, if you don't know this Savior King, uh, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Wow. A Savior King like this. It's always interesting around presidential elections, isn't it? The way people get behind certain candidates. Somehow they think deliverance is going to come. Remember the mantra from the change. We've seen change, right? Now, whether you're for it or against it, it really doesn't matter because whatever change has been accomplished, 
It's nothing in comparison to this Savior King. Come to him if you don't know him. You will not be disappointed. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He's able to take you past this life into the one that is to come. This is the authority he has. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has shed his blood for your life. Perhaps you do know him. Perhaps you are in the thick of the struggle right now. And something is weighing you down. You're you're not feeling like you have enough energy to get across the finish line. The fuel has run low, and it's just about out. Or perhaps that is a a description of what your experience might be in another year or two as you face that, that horrific challenge that's coming your way, the tribulation side of things. You need to look again at this king. Fall at his feet as though dead and see if he doesn't reach out with his right hand. See if he doesn't reach out and touch you and say, fear not. Fear not. Please join me in prayer. Father, what a joy to be here today and to consider these words I ask that you will take these words and apply them to our hearts as we need to hear them today. I pray if there are any here that do not know you, that they will be drawn to your beauty, your power, and your care for your people. Remind us all afresh of how wonderful you are. Remind us of the authority that you have been given and the way you use that authority not to kill us, but to raise us up. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen us this day and give us great joy as we seek to follow you in life and mission. In Jesus' name.